Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Today is Thursday. Tonight, the NFL draft starts. First round, will Jordan Love go? Will he go top 10? The opinions are all over the board. There are people who think he's going to go top 10. There are people who think he's going to slide out of the first round. Seems like the logical thing to do is split the difference and say he'll be a late first rounder, but that ignores the basic fact of the fact of the draft, which is one team has to like you. And if that team is 10th, they take you. That's the way it is, and especially quarterbacks. They tend to be overvalued because they're so hard to get, so people will use the earlier pick to get them because if you hit, the reward is enormous. All right, we're going to get to the draft coming up. But first, for you basketball fans... Jerry Tarkanian, the late, great UNLV basketball coach, a controversial figure, a new book out about him, a sympathetic uh, portrayal written by his son, Danny, who played for him and uh, has strong opinions on how things went down in Vegas. Here he is with PK and I on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Danny, good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Believe it or not, I was a student at UCSB in the 80s, and I watched you play basketball. We're getting old, Danny. What happened? Jerry Trim or before Jerry? Uh, well, I was there before Jerry, and then I did the games on the radio. So, actually, I asked Jerry Pym a lot of questions about your dad because your dad was in the news big time then, and Jerry had known him for a very long time. Yeah, Jerry was one of the great greatest underrated coaches of all time. He had great teams at Utah. In fact, uh, in the book, I talked about how um, uh, the first Final Four team we had, we had a real close game against uh, uh, Pim's team at Utah, and there was one call that made the difference. And, you know, if it goes against us, Utah's in the Final Four, not UNLV. I want to know, Danny, all the stuff that's going on in college basketball today, what would your father think and what would he say? You'd say, well, I've been saying this for a long time, and uh, everybody <laughs> used to complain that I was just um, uh, a cheater and uh, and um, crying sour grapes when uh, what he was actually saying at that time is how college basketball has been operated and ran for decades now. So how do you think that your dad got singled out as a bad guy in an era? Because I think college fans are now more savvy to the fact that, you know, you're, if you're in the top 20, 30, 40 schools, somewhere, somewhere in that number, there, there's a lot of stuff going on that nobody wants to make public, and the FBI just made some of it public. Um, was it, well, was it that know, widespread in your dad's era, or was it a fewer, te- fewer teams? Sure, and it was a little bit different. I discussed this in the book. You know, in the early um, infancy of basketball, you had the boosters that were paying some of them. Now, there's only there's only a, a dozen or so, maybe two dozen schools that would, this was happening to, but you'd have boosters that would pay large sums of money to get players to come there and then give them large sums while they were there. But you got to, and I distinguish this in the book, there's a big difference, and my dad made this point, I think this is what infuriated the NC trade so much, was there's a big difference between buying a player and getting them to come to school and giving them large sums of money, which my father said was completely wrong and every coach should be fired if they did so. And, or the other ones where you're violating the ridiculous rules the NC Tway had that treated the um, 
kids that were dominating in collegiate sports at that time, poor inner city African-American kids, uh, they were discriminating against those kids because they didn't have any discretionary income. If these kids came from poor backgrounds or families didn't have money that could give, give them when they got to college. And the NCAA rules uh, made them live as uh, in poverty or uh, at a much lower level under the uh, federal college students. My dad kept saying that was wrong. And in the book, I gave some examples. We recruited a kid out of New York named Richie Adams. He was from Fort Apache in the Bronx, one of the worst neighborhoods in the entire country. He lived with his grandmother because he didn't have any parents. And when he signed with us, how does he get to college? How does he get to Las Vegas without breaking any rules? His family doesn't have any money. Well, of course, uh, somebody from UNLV had to arrange for him to get money to fly out there. And every school in the country that recruits these kids are doing the same thing because the kids just don't have the money to get out there. Then once they get out to school, how do those kids... Uh, you know, they, they got to put a deposit on an apartment. They don't have that money. Maybe they got to get furniture for the apartment. They don't have that money. Well, if they want to go on a date, they don't have any money to go on the date. The scholarship check was just the cost of tuition and the room and board and, and even the cafeteria. So my dad was an outspoken critic against uh, these rules and the way they treated the players, and the NC trade didn't like that. My dad did back down, and it went on for 31 years, his entire coaching career. So do you think, in a sense, your father was just ahead of his time? Well, there's no doubt about it, and I don't know if it's so much ahead of his time because all the coaches that were involved uh, coaching at that time knew what was going on. My father was more outspoken, and it, to the day he died, he said the biggest mistake he made was being outspoken against the NC toy, uh, and he felt it, it really de- destroyed his career. It certainly ended it prematurely and, and minimized it. Um, I mean, he didn't get in the Hall of Fame until he was 83 years old when he had one of the greatest records of all time and certainly the greatest at a non-major college. Um, so he just was outspoken, and maybe uh, he, sh- he shouldn't have been, but he did it because he believed in it, and I was very proud of what he did. So your dad was a great interview. He was not a good interview. He was a great interview, and I had multiple <laughs> experiences with that, and yeah. he said hilarious stuff. And I'm wondering which line you remember more fondly. Uh, I love Pac-10 transfers because their cars are already paid for. That, that was, he loved that. He got that one when we, a great Gorgian transfer from Arizona State and came to UNLV. He was driving a white Fiat convertible. <laughs> paid for by Arizona State. Or the NCAA is so mad at Kentucky that they put Western Kentucky on probation. Yeah. You know, that's my favorite. It's one that's been... Uh, out there the most. Uh, he, my father has a really, he was really quick with and had some great lines. I put those in the book, not only the ones that he had, but also ones that other fellow coaches had that were really um, funny yet yeah, during the time. Jim Balvano was one of the funniest coaches ever, and I got a bunch of his one-liners in there. Abe Lemons, who used to coach at uh, Oklahoma City and then uh, Texas. Funny guy, and they used to, that was how coaching was back then. It was a fraternity, and the coaches would hang out together. They'd tell these stories. They'd crack people up, and, and I'd try to put that in the book so the readers would really appreciate and enjoy it much more. Do you think the NCAA has eased up on trying to be so meticulous on infractions? Are they just ignoring it or what? But what they did was, and my dad argued for this when he was coaching, he said the scholarship, he did not think you should pay players to come to to play basketball at the school, but he did think the kids should get enough money to live as fellow uh, students do that are on campus. So the NCAA, ironically, um, this was what, 20 five years after my father uh, left UNLV. The NCAA had uh, passed legislation that now allows schools to pay um, 
kids enough money so they could live as their fellow students did exactly what my father said. And with that now, there should be less cheating that needs to go on. There still are rules that they need to change. Like you should be able to allow um, the school to pay for the kid to come out to school and then even to go home maybe once or twice a year to visit his family. There are more rules that need to be changed, but because uh, of the scrutiny that's gone on uh, from the national media now, the institute is slowly but surely making these these changes. You know, back in the 60s and 70s and even the 80s, the institute really had a, um, a lock on the media. Uh, the media believed everything the institute said and, and never really criticized them. Now the media is criticizing them and it's exposing some of the real problems out there. Danny Tarkanian joining us, author of Rebel with a Cause, a biography of his dad, Jerry Tarkanian. Um, would your dad be surprised at how uh, massive the cheating has gotten now? Because we have heard stories, and I mean, we can't go into who's telling them on the air, but PK and I both believe them, uh, stories of elite players who can charge for home visits. Because it means so much to a for a home visit. If you want a home visit, if you want to come to my house and you'll use that to recruit other kids, you're going to pay X number. And it's a good number. It's a good number. I don't, I don't believe that was going on when my father coached. I think what happens is the rewards of success is so great now. I mean, you get, look at the salaries these coaches are making um, and how much money the schools are making uh, because there's so much at risk uh, or the rewards are being so great, the cheating's getting worse, and I'm sure it would stagger anybody, including my father. One of the things that I thought that as I reflected back and looking about what he had going on at UNLV, he was known as, you know, a run-and-gun guy, just high-flying dunks and all that stuff, and it was very entertaining basketball. But then you read the foreword from uh, Shusevsky, and he says Jerry Tarkanian was a phenomenal defensive coach. Do you find that sort of funny that his legacy isn't really like that, even though his peers considered him to be a phenomenal defensive coach? You know, that's really a great question. Thank you for bringing it up, because it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is there's so many misnomers about my father uh, and his career. Uh, when my father first started coaching, he was his own coach, and in this, he took over Long Beach State program that was Division Two. and in his third year, they almost beat UCLA in the regional finals. They lost by two in the closest game UCLA had in the seven-year national championship run. After the game, John Wooden said uh, Tarkini was the greatest zone coach he'd ever played against. And then Coach K, after we beat him by 30 in the national championship game, made the same comments, but this time about his man defense. He said Coach Tarkin is one of the greatest uh, man uh, defensive coaches ever. And in the forward, he said the same thing. My father always had success because of his defense, and he always emphasized defense. Anybody who came and watched us practice, it was a three-hour practice, Two hours would be full defense, only defense, and then the last hour would do defense to offense. But we really worked on it, and we worked on the real fine techniques of it. And I, I tried to put that in the book, too. I explained, you know, what we went through and how he taught it because it was very, very unique. Uh, nobody concentrated on the small things of defensively that, that uh, my dad did. In fact, Billy Donovan came to Fresno State to ask us how we taught defense so well and we went through all these things and he said well there's no way we can coach that there's just too much to it and it really was because of some of the stories uh jerry pym had and the personal relationship he had with jerry tarkanian i always had a soft spot for tark i found him entertaining and i found him uh fun 
Uh, but we also have ties to some of the programs your dad has been at and from people who were there after him. And I'm curious, and, and I'm 100% with you on the NCAA hypocrisy and some schools got penalized and your dad got treated more harshly. But do you think if everything your dad did came to light, uh, do you think he'd have no regrets, some regrets, a lot of regrets? Where, where do you think that would fall? Well, I think my father did what he felt was necessary to um, allow the kids that were participating and at his, at his in his program and at his school to live a, a life like uh, other college kids are doing, and they certainly were were numerous violations and he had to go through his entire coaching career denying those things were happening uh, um, my dad hated hypocrisy, he hated phony, so I know that really bothered him um, in fact. He, Whenever you you spoke with him a little bit, uh, and he was honest about it, he'd make his comments. Another one of his funny liners was that um, uh, uh, nine out of ten co- uh, school coaches are cheating; the tenth is in last place, and um, <laughs> and he really believed that. I think UNLV is one of the hardest jobs in the country because of your father, because they're always referring back to him and the success that he had. Uh, does the Tarkanian family realize how difficult they made that job because of a phenomenal run that he had? Yeah, I think that's happened, too, at some other schools with John Wood and some others. But I'm going to tell you the problem UNLV had is, first, they forced my father out in a very humiliating and disgraceful manner, and it alienated a lot of the supporters of my dad's program. But worse than that, they intentionally tried to disown and lose the memory of all the great uh, things that my father and his program did. Uh, they didn't put a picture of my father up in the Thomas and Mack Center for over 15 years after he coached. Uh, they had, they wanted nothing to do with the program. In fact, Larry Johnson, Stacey Ogman, and Greg Anthony, they all uh, changed their number once they went to the NBA. And they would, and when they had those cards where they put down what school you're from, Larry Johnson put Odessa Junior College. He wouldn't even put UNLV. It wasn't until Long Kruger came that he embraced the past, and uh, they started doing some things with my father. They built the statue and everything. And uh, that's trying to bring the program back together. And I think that gives them a better chance of success now than they had in the past. I know you got to run, but I want to leave you with this, Danny, because it's one story, uh, and you may know others about it with your dad, but it was just one interaction I had. I had just gotten my first radio job in Santa Barbara out of school. I worked at a news talk radio station there, and I had a half-hour talk show, and it just filled the time from the end of the local news and the drive time in the afternoon until we went into whatever game or talk show we were going into. So you get a guest on. I knew a Tark come to town for, you know, the, that's the biggest game of the year in Santa Barbara, and I had to get him. And so I set it up, and I was going to get a phone call with him at his, in his hotel room the night before the, uh, or the night they got in. And it was, you know, supposed to be at like 9.30 at night or something. And I start calling at 9.30, and I call every five minutes until midnight. And never, no answer, nothing. And I see the UCSB Sports Information Director, and they had gone out to dinner and drinks afterwards, and there was like 10 or 15 of them, and Tark was telling stories, and they were out until 1 in the morning, and it was hilarious, and literally, that's why I didn't get the interview, but I was desperate. I had already promoted it, so the next morning, I went to the hotel, and I figured, I'm going to just try and catch him in a hallway. This is totally embarrassing that I promoted, and I'm not going to have the interview. I'm literally doing the job for like, I'm a month into the job, and... Uh, and I see all these players coming down for breakfast. I knew they were where they were going to go at the Biltmore. And everybody's in the UNLV gear, right? T-shirts, sweats, and all that. I see assistant coaches, no Tark. I finally go and call his room. 
And uh, and I get this answer. Uh, hello. I clearly woke him up. <laughs> I'm stammering like a 22 year old idiot. Just I, I was at David James. I, was, I thought we were going to interview, and then you did. And he's like, "Come on up to my room. Click." And he hangs up. Well, they're not going to give me his room number. I got to call him back. He gives me the room number. I go there. The door's propped open. He is propped up in bed on a pillow. This would (laughs) never, ever happen. I couldn't believe it happened then. And I give him this interview. He literally had to grab his pants and pull them off the chair and throw them to the ground. Sit there, kid. And he's got the the morning voice. And then I click the microphone. I kid you not. His voice clears up. He's totally alert. He does a priceless 10-minute interview. He dropped the Kentucky West Kentucky line. He said, I guarantee you Kentucky's cheating. You play this interview for me in one year. You tell me I'm wrong. The NCAA will do nothing. The next year, more respectably, I catch him out of the arena at the end of the shoot-around the, or the practice the day before, going to the bus, and I'm holding two tape recorders, and he's looking at me like, what is wrong with you? He has no memory of this interview, right? And I, So I start in on the interview, and I'm telling him, a year ago I was in your, you're at your hotel, and you told me, and his eyes lit up. All of a sudden he remembered, you're the guy I let into my hotel room. And I start to play the other one. He goes, you don't have to play it. I know what I said. And he went on this hilarious 90-second rant, uh, rant. They were two of the just so much fun to do those interviews and so enlightening. It was good to have you on and uh, I know you're going to well, stick thanks. up for the memory of your dad, you know, you're a son and of course you're going to do that. And so good luck with the book. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I love to hear those stories. There's Danny Tarkanian, the book on Jerry Tarkanian, available online. I could say it stores everywhere, but who's going to a store? You know you're going to order a book online, so there you go. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk NFL Draft with Brian Keel, former BYU linebacker, a fourth-round pick, played for the Giants, his experience on draft day, what the local guys are going to go through. He knows Francis Bernard pretty well. How does Francis Bernard look in the NFL, and what can he do that will really attract NFL people? He is one of the guys I think get drafted. I don't think he's one of the first five guys drafted, but when you start talking, we'll be six, seven, eight, nine. Where's it going to go? It's guys like him. Are they going to go? I think he will. I think he'll be drafted. That's why I'm picking a higher number, and I think there'll be seven or eight guys drafted. And I probably ought to go higher. I'll go eight. Uh, we'll talk with Brian Keel next. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Brian Keel, former BYU linebacker, former fourth-round pick in the 2008 NFL Draft. Brian, good morning. Good morning, fellas. How you guys doing? Excellent. So, you get the flashbacks now. It's the draft. You remember the sweaty palms, stressed out, family asking you how it's going, wishing you'd just leave me alone. I'm stressed out. <laughs> Those, they were good times. You know what's funny? Um, you, you, you say that. It actually brings back a memory. Um, I was so anxious for it to, to be over with because I got so sick of everybody asking me, where, where, where are you going to go? Who are you going to go to? And I remember being like, I have no idea. I'll find out when you find out. I have no idea. <laughs> Good times, though. Good times. So we talked to Trevor Riley. He went in the seventh round, and he, so he knew that he wasn't going to go early. So he didn't uh, have anxiety in the beginning. But then when it got down to that uh, last portion, 
he said he had to go golf and he just couldn't sit around the house. He said so he went out and played some golf. What did you do though at that time? Yeah, so we, um, you know, I it's funny. A little while ago, I was talking to some guys and I said um, basically every year, every single person that gets drafted gets drafted lower than they expect to go, except for one guy. <laughs> There's one guy every year that goes right where he expects to go, and then everybody after that is disappointed because they, they should have gone higher, right? And so, um, so that, you know, it, anyway, for me, you know, I thought I was going to go higher than I did. Uh, we all do. And, um, and so you, you kind of, you're a little disappointed. And so with me and my family, um, we were we were just at home, and it was funny because when I did go, we were kind of checked out of it a little bit because you get, with every pick, you're so anxious. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. And um, you can only do that for so long. And um, so for me, when I when I did get picked um, by the Giants fourth round, I actually we had actually kind of stopped paying close attention. We were just I mean the draft was still on on the TV and everything, but um, we were kind of just chit chatting. And I almost missed the phone call because um, I just wasn't paying attention. And and um, I you know rang almost rang all the way through and then but, but I you know on the last ring basically I heard it and you know in my phone in my pocket and and, uh, and got it and sure enough it was the Giants and you know the rest of history but you know it was, it was a fun day it was absolutely a dream come true so I don't know how well you know Trevor but he told the story and if you know him this is classic he said that the Jets called him when he was golfing and they were saying hey we got a couple picks here in the seventh round but if we don't get you we definitely want to sign you as a free agent and he was in that irritable phase that you know so well and he told yeah. him hey if you don't use one of your one of these two picks i don't know who i'm signing with but it's not you <laughs> and then <laughs> I like it. his agent called him and told him he said hey what did you tell the jets and so he repeated to him goes you know, you probably ought to be running that kind of stuff by me before you just blurted out to an NFL team. And he said, but I think it kind of worked. I think they liked the answer. <laughs> and sure enough, they just drafted yeah. him. Classic. They probably like a little little, little piss in the fire there. That was, that's pretty good. That's a good story. It, it is. It's, it's one of those days and one of those situations. It's un, unlike anything else. You don't really know what to expect or how to react. And there, there is a flood of emotions. And I could totally understand that and that mentality. And NFL, I mean, the guys, it's funny, all the little games they play. Um, and a lot of guys that, that go in, ended up going uh, as a free agent, you know, they, they, get, they get those calls at the end. And it's kind of kind of a jerk move, if you ask me. And they, they, the teams will call those guys and string them along, like, hey, we're going to take you here, we're going to take you here. And, um, and a lot of times the teams aren't even planning on taking them in that sixth or seventh round. They just want to kind of string them along and, and get, them, get them liking them, which is funny because it's almost like the opposite. Because, you know, if they tell a guy they're going to take them and they don't, then, yeah, you, you should react like Trevor and kind of be pissed off. But it, it's NFL. They're going to do what they're going to do. So, Brian, you get drafted by the Giants, as you say. And then what happens next as far as when you go back to the New York area? What what? For these kids who get drafted here in the next coming days, what should they expect to happen immediately after the draft? Yeah, so if you go, I mean, the, obviously the, the first-round picks, they'll, they'll go out there that day or the next day um, for the press conference and, and all, that, all that jazz. Um, basically, from the second round on, um, 
you know, you, you don't go out there until they have their first um, rookie mini camp. And, um, and for the Giants, if I remember, it was, um, I think it was about a week later that they had their first um, rookie mini camp. And so in that next week, um, the linebacker coach was calling me and he kind of going over the playbook and going over some stuff. And he, he just kind of wanted to get a jump start on it. And, and it was, it was important because the, the Giants, their, their, their uh, defense was really complicated with Steve Spagnola. And uh, so that, that, that head start was, was critical for, for trying to understand it. Um, I was actually with Dave Nixon yesterday um, and we were talking about how complicated that defense is. But yeah, so you go out there for the, that first um, rookie mini camp, and it's just all rookies, and, and it's just you know it's baptism by fire. They just are feeding you with a, a water hose, a fire hose, trying to get you, trying to get you up to speed and get get everything inside your brain as fast as they can. And it's it's just a whirlwind, and it's just um, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a fun time, it's a special time in your life, but it's also it's really stressful and nerve wracking and. And uh, just absolutely just a whirlwind. So uh, it's interesting because I don't think that they're going to fly anyone out for a press conference this year because, honestly, the last press conference I was at would have been uh, post-game the day Rudy touched the microphones. That was in the, that was in the shoot-around at 10 a.m., so it wasn't that. But after the game that night... And then that was it, and everything's been remote since then. They might have to do something remote. If you're a rookie and you don't get a, uh, you don't get a rookie minicamp and everything's delayed and, and the schedule is compressed, then, and, and you can probably answer this better, you know, there must be in the locker room, there must, guy, must be guys who are mentally are really dialed into things, and it would seem like those guys would have an advantage because if all you're meeting is... Um, you know, you're, you know, all the whatever your position group is meets with that position coach and he tells you a bunch of stuff and then you got to watch film cut-ups and think about it because there is no practice. It would seem like that would play to some guy's strength and, and could play against other guys. Yeah, so it's funny. Um, I was thinking about that, that dynamic the other day of how, you know, this, this thing that's going on, you know, it's going to eliminate probably all of spring uh, the stuff that the, the NFL does, um, all of OTAs, all of that stuff. And then uh, hopefully, you know, heaven forbid it's still going on in the fall, uh, but hopefully it's gone by then and the season's able to, um, you know, not just for football, obviously for every other reason. But anyway, hopefully it's gone in the fall and the, and the season is able to go on. But I think about that dy- dynamic and how, how big of a disadvantage that is for the rookies because um, you the rookies, you know, are getting thrown out there. They, they need that spring to – to get up to speed to understand the the new offense and defense and the nuances of the game and it is so much more complex than college football. I can't even you can't even explain it to someone who hasn't experienced it. It is it is just it's not like going from high school to college. It is you know it's like skipping college and going to to a PhD. It, 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 it's it's it, the jump is just so much bigger and and especially mentally and and you need all of that time. In, in the the film room with the coach and in the playbook and learning all that stuff, so it is a big, big disadvantage. And I actually was thinking back several years ago um, when they had the lockout. Uh, it was my my fourth year um, in the league. They had that lockout, and 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 so we missed the whole spring. And the same type of thing. The rookies that year were at a disadvantage, and they didn't you know they didn't show up till right when training camp started in the fall. And and then it's you know it's just double speed for those guys and, and for, for other guys that you talked about with that mental edge. And that's how I looked at it was 
the, the lockout. Um, and I know this situation is different, but um, some similar dynamics there. The way I looked at it was the lockout was I thought, you know, there's going to be other guys that aren't going to take this time on their own and put the work in, and I'm going to use that to my advantage. I'm going to put the work in so that when we do show up, I'm ahead of them. And that actually did kind of work out to my favor. And if I was still playing right now in college or the NFL, that's how I would look at it. I'd be looking at it like, man, there's going to be a lot of guys out there who are just on the couch right now, and I'm, I'm going to use this time to get to lap them. And, and that's kind of just the mindset that I would have taken it, or that, that I would take it right now. Did you have a chance to see Francis Bernard play at all? And if so, could you evaluate his chances as a linebacker in the NFL? Yeah, so I, I watched a bunch of Utah games last year um, and and I watched Francis a ton and <clears throat> obviously watched him when he played at BYU. And um, I played a bunch of basketball with him um, at Lifetime pickup games as well. So I know Francis really well. He's a good dude. And um, super super athletic uh, for a linebacker. Obviously, you know he was a running back and moved over to linebacker. And and he, he he's because he's more athletic than the typical linebacker. And I actually expected him to test better than he did. I was I was kind of surprised at some of his time um, because he's he's more athletic than his numbers showed. And um, but he he's very fluid and smooth in his movements. And you know he's just he's just an athlete, just able to control, have really good body control, and and um, and in terms of playing linebacker, uh, he has a really high motor, which is which is huge, and um, he he brings a good pop when he hits, and he's 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 got great instincts, and um, he's a good football player. He's gonna you know he's I mean, he's got absolutely got a chance. He um, he should from everything I've seen, he's you know a late round prospect. And um, so, you know, if he doesn't get drafted, he'll be a free agent for sure. And, and he'll have a great chance to make a team because his, his skill set will translate well to special teams, which in that situation, which is what making a team is all about. So he should, he should do well for himself. That athleticism is critical now. What percentage of the time would he be in pass coverage? Because I would think for a linebacker, there's a lot more of that than there is the run stuffing. Yeah, you know, these days it is. It's a different game. It's kind of interesting. The NFL is, goes through these, these cycles and phases. And and um, for me, like me personally, my skill set, I would have been better off if I was coming into the NFL right now. And um, I would have, I could have, should have. But I, I would have had a better career, um, would have been on the field more and been way more impactful, impactful if I came into the league right now than when I did come into the league, and it is what it is. It just that's how life goes. But timing is everything. And when I came into the league, um, it was still a run-first league. Most of the teams there's if it, my my first couple years in the league, there was only like one or two teams, like like uh, the Saints, and I can't remember who other the other team was. But there's only like one or two teams that threw the ball more than they ran the ball. They, every team in the league still ran the ball, um, you know, 55, 60 percent of their snaps. And now that I mean, there's only a couple teams um, that run the ball more. Um, you know, like like Tennessee last year. You know, most teams most teams throw the rock, they air it out. And so these linebackers, they have to be fast, they have to be athletic, they have to be able to cover, they have to do well in space. And those are all the skill sets that I had. And so it, you know, these kids that are coming in, like Francis, he's great in coverage. He's a good athlete. So that'll translate well. And and 
And uh, those are the skill sets for linebackers that they're they're looking for right now. There's Brian Keel. When we come back, we will talk with Thor Nystrom, and he covers the uh, draft for Roto World and for NBC Sports. He's next. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, this is 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Late in the show yesterday, we talked with Thor Nystrom, who writes for uh, NBC Sports and covers the draft for Roto World. Now, you'll hear references about tomorrow night and all that because we talked to him yesterday, but his take on the NFL draft, will there be trades, where will the quarterbacks go, Jordan Love, what about all the Utes? Here's, and, and also, technically, if there's a meltdown in this draft, what happens? He gets into that. What happens if the ID department for a team just crashes. Then what happens? Here's uh, Thor Nystrom with PK and I. Thor, good morning. And how are we doing? Merry Christmas or Merry Christmas Eve, I guess. Yeah, right. NFL draft. <laughs> it's uh, and and here, although we don't have an NFL team and people's loyalties here are split, uh, we're all following the Utes to see how many of those players get drafted. And then the Jordan Love story. We can start there with the Utah State Aggies quarterback, and he was really good two years ago. Last year, there were a shocking number of interceptions. Some. I mean, you expected a little bit of turmoil because he had a new head coach, a new OC, and nine new starters on offense. But still, some of the uh, pick sixes he threw, trying to throw the ball over to the sideline, and not seeing uh, linebackers underneath throwing down the field, it's a huge red flag. People are split. Uh, Should he be a top 10 pick? Could he fall out of the first round? What would you do if you were making the call? Yeah, I I see him more as a late first-round guy. You know, if I I needed a quarterback and – I'm even split internally, you know, like the way that I feel about him. And I imagine that a lot of people that evaluate sort of feel the same way. You know, I, I think if you look at Jordan Love and you feel like you know what he's going to be 100%, I feel like you're wrong. You know, um, the, the way that I, I think about it is the way that you see Jordan Love, it, it, says, it says more about who you are than, than who Jordan Love is. Um, because it, it, a player with that sort of profile, it's just sort of impossible to say, this is exactly how it's it's, it's going to go. And, I mean, your point's really well taken. And folks out there, I mean, you, you guys know how the progression went. 2018, uh, he, he looked like a future top 10 pick, you know. And, and his, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but his TDI and T ratio is something like, you know, 32 to 6 or whatever. And he was playing with a couple NFL players there. And then, obviously, Darwin left and Ron Quavian left and Dax Raymond left and the coaching staff left and, you know, some of the offensive linemen left. And then, all of a sudden, like, you know, he returns and he's playing with Paul Cruz, you know, team from the longest yard. And, you know, the, the offensive, uh, you know, coaching staff is sort of bereft of uh, of creativity last year. And it was like, you know, sometimes it, it felt like Jordan Love was just like, like, like super frustrated about what was going on. And then it was like other times, like, he just was like, I don't care. Like, you know, I'm just annoyed. Like, like sometimes it felt like he was sort of like the goth kid, like up in his room was like sort of sulking like his dad had left it was like sort of painting his fingernails black it was like this sucks you know he's just throwing the ball into chest plates of linebackers and stuff like that and so as far as his evaluation you're talking about a kid 
perfect frame. He couldn't draw it up any better. Same thing with the athleticism. The ball shoots out of his hand like a pitching machine. I mean, you just don't see it like that too much. You know, it's just like, shroom, shroom, you know, whatever, like um, super comfortable in the pocket. You know, one of those kids, it just looks like he was born there. Um, but, you know, again, he, he already had some raw elements as far as his game 2018, even though you could project it much easier. Last year, he had some sort of bugs, you know, some things as far as the decision-making, um, the processing, stuff like that, the field vision, um, the bad habits that got ingrained that, in addition, now are, are going to have to be sort of coached out of him. You're going to have to have a, you know, a guy go in there like an IT team and sort of like try to debug him. It just elevates that risk profile a bit, but – just because of how high that, that ceiling is, um, even with that risk profile at the position he plays, it almost demands that he goes in, in the first round in a quarterback needy league. Do you see the Patriots uh, drafting a quarterback either staying where they are or trading up? I think that I, I don't see them trading up for Jordan Love just because of that risk profile. That would seem to be an anti-Belichick thing. The one scenario where I could see them trading up for a quarterback, um, and it seems less likely now than it did a week ago, but when there was a lot of a lot of that smoke about to his hip, and it seemed like it did seem a little bit overblown. It seemed like there was some some people in the Miami organization that were sort of bending over backwards to grab ears of their sources in the media and tell them like, oh, you know, we're concerned about your, we're concerned about Tua. Like, we actually like Justin Herbert more, which didn't really make any sense because if it was if, it, if that was actually true I, i'm not sure why you'd be trying to tell like all the draft folks that but if you know if that scenario was true or if it, it does turn out to be true and they just they just have really loose lips or whatever and Tua does fall beyond them and let's just say that san diego just they're not the biggest Tua fans and they they decide to take an offensive tackle you know or whatever instead of instead of a quarterback that would be the scenario where potentially Tua starts to fall down a little bit you know, the NFL is a paranoid league as is, and Tua, you know, because of the hip, wasn't allowed, and because of the, the coronavirus, obviously, wasn't allowed to go into teams' as facilities and be seen by their team's doctors. And so the NFL has to rely on another doctor. And even though the doctor that saw Tua is a world-renowned hip expert, the NFL is still like, well, you know, my medical team wasn't allowed to see him. And, you know, I mean, like, all of us out there, we're in our own, like, little, you know, quarantines or whatever. We're all spending a lot of time sort of by ourselves and stuff like that. And you gotta you got to think, like, these NFL decision makers, it's the same sort of thing. And during this process, they've sort of been festering with their own thoughts and, um, you know, stuff like that. I think a little bit of even more paranoia than usual is setting in. And so that, that would be sort of the scenario where if Tua starts to fall down a bit, that would be the scenario where I could see, you know, if, if, if you see Tua like at 11, at 12, something like that, 13, I think that's where you could see the page, you know, Belichick just saying, like, this isn't something I usually do, but this is a crazy scenario. This kid shouldn't be available. Like, let's just do this thing. Well, you just referenced the charges of San Diego, so Dean Spanos will probably be suing you in about 20 minutes. So good luck with that. But that's I'll get okay. The lawyer on the phone. Yeah, we know we know what you're getting at though, as far as the Chargers with Taylor and is he a bridge quarterback? You know, to the next guy, we get that. So while we're all following uh, the quarterbacks here, especially because Jordan Love and, and a guy we've all watched on TV here, we've also watched a lot of the Utes, and they are going to have, depending on who you believe, six, seven, eight, nine guys drafted. I think it's going to be on the higher end of that. But uh, you study it closer than I do and talk to NFL people. So what do you think? They're going to have a lot, uh, and, and a lot of defenders, a lot of interesting defenders, right? I mean, 
you could sort of go down the list. And it's, it's, it's a lot of guys where it's like, you know, different flavors for different guys. I'm a big Jalen Johnson guy. I'm a big, big Jalen Johnson guy. And I heard from a source that his shoulder is good. Um, you know, it's cleaned out. Everything is good with that. It's not going to be an issue going forward. So to me, Jalen Johnson is for sure, no doubt about it, a first round guy. Um, you know, and, and, and to me, you know, quasi top 20 pick type guy, I think I have him as cornerback for, um, you know, and then, I mean, just like, you know, again, with the defenders, we have two other guys in the defensive backfield there with them, both really interesting guys, Burgess and Blackman, you know, Nay, uh, uh, Lecky, you know, I mean, like, you, you just sort of go down the list. I, we'll see if Huntley gets drafted. I mean, he, he's a possibility for round seven. Obviously, Zach Moss is going to be drafted in the middle rounds at some point. I don't know exactly what the number is going to be, but um, it's going to be a lot. And, you know, we've seen in recent years, like the NFL respects what Utah does as far as player development goes. Um, those kids come into the league ready to play. So you're going to see a lot of Utah Utes go Friday or Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And to an extent, the draft is somewhat of a crapshoot. Do you think this year, with the circumstances that we have, with no personal workouts and pro days and whatnot, that it's more of a crapshoot? Yes, I do. Yeah, and in in this sort of very specific way, where in you know in the past the NFL, it's like this sort of like investigative unit, like like the FBI, and they're getting like you know on every single prospect, you know, even beyond the three hundred and however many guys get invited to the combine you know, double, triple that amount of prospects, they get all the intel in the world on them, you know, where it's like their background info and they're talking to family and friends and obviously they're grinding the tape and, you know, looking into the analytics and they have their their athletic profile tests and obviously they're talking to the coaches, like everything like that. This year, the, the, the amount of information available to them w- took a huge haircut, you know, where they couldn't get these kids in the building. The athletic testing that they have to go off of, of guys that were not at the Combine, um, you basically would have to go off of a kid's word, you know, with some of those like ridiculous YouTube, you know, testing things that we saw from, from some of these kids and stuff like that, you know, and I saw a bunch of them, you know, just as someone who, you know, does this for a job. Like I, I got sent a whole bunch of kids that did not go to the combine were DMing me their, you know, YouTube, you know, tests or whatever. And, you know, you watch me, you're just like, I, I can't take that seriously. Like I, you know, it, you're not there. It's a wide angle. Like, I mean, I can't take your time seriously. You know, you can't bake that in whatever. So what this does is, like, if you were not invited to the Combine, if you didn't get in front of teams there, if you didn't submit an athletic profile there, for for those guys that did not, it just – for those guys, as far as their evaluation goes, it makes their tape that much more important. And so, for me, this draft is – it it really benefits the Combine guys, number one. I think you're going to see the most guys who got invited to the Combine ever get drafted. So I think that's number one. It really hurts guys that did not get invited to the Combine. And I think number two, it's the all-time tape draft. You know, it it leverages your tape more than anything. And so in the past where – Guys could move up the board depending more on their, you know, pro day testing, um, their personalities, getting in front of people, meshing well with coaches, you know, stuff like that, character, stuff like that. Um, they can't do that as much this year. You know, you can only do so much of that over, over Scoop, Skype and Zoom and like stuff like that. And so um, I, I just think it's going to be way more tape and stuff like that. And I was talking with a, a friend about this. It's going to be interesting in a decade or so to look back at this class and, and look at the hit rate of this class, you know, first round, second round, third round, all the way through the seventh round and see if, you know, in, in terms of correlation to NFL success, if the hit rate on this one, depend, you know, is, is higher or lower 
than in regular years because if it if it just I mean everyone just sort of assumes like you know this this is going to be worse you know a lot of GMs are already sort of like oh you know I I didn't we weren't able to get a regular process they're already sort of baking in excuses for themselves um, but if it's better. You know, because that, that's a possibility. It, it, we 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 could have like a higher hit rate. You know, this year it, it would just sort of speak to the idea that the tape is is more important than you know some of these other aspects of the process. You know, and maybe that would in some ways fundamentally change the process itself. Well, you you. I, I... Your first half of the answer, I thought you were going the other way. In the end, you brought it back. I've always been stunned that it turns into the decathlon at the Combine when you've got all this tape, and it's going to be a football game, not a track meet. Now, the thing they're giving up is the in-person interviews, and if that helps tell you which guys just don't have the makeup to do the extra film work and to be detail-oriented and be part of the team, I get where that isn't an excuse. That's a reason when a GM says it. But, man, the decathlon versus the tape, I've always thought the tape should be more important. I, I don't understand why we're sitting around watching televised shuttle drills thinking that's really important when we already can see if a guy can run over to the sideline and make a tackle or not. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, there there are some guys where it is disqualifying in, in, in terms of they just don't have the juice to play. You know, that like um, you know, in terms of threshold, like you know, we, we do have the data on this where there, there's you know, at a certain point, a guy just does not have the athleticism to play in the NFL, and at, and at certain athletic thresholds, you know, we have the data that says that, that you know they're going to be far more likely to succeed. So just in terms of that, it is a useful data point, but the tape is more important. I mean, that that is the thing. You know, it's and that should lead the day in evaluations. 100% until this year, that being the thing that is going to get leveraged, it will be interesting. You know, again, looking back at this draft in a decade, because this is going to be, this draft will be a data point unto itself. We're never going to see something like this again. It's going to be interesting to see if, if this draft has a higher hit rate or a lower rate than historical drafts. Do you think that even maybe starting with the first round, because of the situation, teams will be more sure of who they want to draft and there won't be any doubt when it's their pick? Or will there be some deliberation we should go ABC direction? I think the first round's the one that will be more by the book, you know, at least as, as far as that goes, as far as like a crazy year. Just because like these teams have done all the exercises as far as the mock stuff. They have information about where some of these, these other you know teams are going. I'm sure they've you know, it's sort of like, you know, like the old uh, Bill Walsh thing, you know, where they, they would like, you know, he'd, he'd draw out like the first, you know, 10, 20 plays or whatever. I think where it will get really crazy is starting after that and specifically in day three, just because, you know, the, the, the way the teams will view all those different kids and because of that lack of information, um, I think you're just going to start to see maybe some what I would consider to be dart throws. You know, we're, we're, we're going to see guys that maybe, you know, I might see as an undrafted guy go in the fourth round. And, you know, I mean, just like just differing opinions like that, um, just because, you know, again, it, it, it will go down to the information and, and analysis of tape as opposed to some of these other different things. So um, I think in the first round, we're definitely going to see some curveballs for sure. I mean, we're going to see curveballs throughout this this thing, and it could start at three, you know, as early as three, you know, if the Lions bail out of that pick. Um but yeah, specifically once we get later on, um, I, I think it's going to start to get like truly like wild, wild west crazy. Uh, last thing here before we let you go: if there is a major technical snafu because it's a virtual draft and a team's time on the clock runs out, 
are they going to just say, just blow them a kiss, wave goodbye, and go on? Or is there going to be some acknowledgement that, hey, this is an IT issue, let's let this team make a pick? What are they going to do? How set in stone are the rules? They claim that they're they're able to just pause the draft. Like, it seems like the NFL is going forward with this thing, like like literally like it's a fantasy football draft. Like like Goodell will have the, the possibility of just sort of hitting the red button, you know, like commissioner mode, like, you know, when you guys out there played your ESPN thing and it's like it has the commissioner access and it's like pause draft. Like it really feels like that I mean that that seems what the protocol is for this. It's crazy, but it seems like that's what it is. And so like you know, you think back to like that one year with the Vikings where they got they got hopped a couple times because they didn't get the pick in time. I don't even know if if that would happen because like if a team didn't pick in time, would Goodell be calling them and being like, "Well, did you just not get it in in time because you didn't get it in in time, or are you having technical difficulties?" Like, you know, would they pause it at that point? I'm not really sure, but uh, you know, the the that part of it could be even crazier than the picks, which I also expect the picks to be pretty crazy. We're, we're going to get multiple levels of crazy. It's going to be like inside the looking glass, like Alice in Wonderland, kind of crazy here the next couple of days. I can't wait for it. I'm, I'm going to be here for the whole thing, you know. He's Thor Nystrom. He dropped the Paul Crew reference earlier and never left. We're social distancing here, so we couldn't get PK's take because he's on remote. But I'm in one studio, and, uh, and, and our producer Jake is through the other one. And when you dropped that Paul Crew reference, we both looked at each other like, nice, look at you go. Good work. <laughs> the, the, the fake football you player. You got, fans know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the fake football player got the bigger reaction than any of the real football players. All right, Thor, we, <laughs> we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. There's Thor Nystrom. I am curious about what happens if technically someone just goes dark, you know, just poof, you're gone. You ever been on a Zoom call and everything goes away? You ever had a cell phone just drop unexpectedly? Yeah, you have. What happens then? It'll be interesting to play to just have this play out, and uh, we'll see what happens tonight with the first round. All right, DJ and PK. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines. Stay with us.